We're going to be in Luke 19 this morning. We're going to kind of take a little detour from Timothy, and uh, because it's Palm Sunday, we want to get ourselves ready uh, for the big event this week. So we've got um, Good Friday is going to be, uh, we're going to do a service here on Good Friday. It's going to be at 6.30 this Friday, so come join us. We're also going to do a crosswalk. We're actually going to start up at the Shell Station there up by the highway, and we're just going to walk through town with uh, that cross. And we're just going to walk through and, and wave to people, and just hopefully they'll remember what Jesus did for them at this time. This is Passion Week. So we'll be doing the, the crosswalk from Shell Station to here at 5.30, and then we'll have the service here at 6.30. I'm pretty excited about that. And then Easter service, we're going to be doing at 8 o'clock and at 9.30. So there'll be an 8 o'clock service and a 9.30. Uh, on Sunday, next Sunday. So it's going to come up fast. Um, we also have um, the elderly Easter dinner will be Tuesday night, right down the street here. So if you went out these doors, made a left, made your first right, you come to an elderly complex. We like to bless them every year around Easter, Christmas, um, you know, special occasions. Uh, we're going to bring food, and you can bring a side dish, and bring your guitars, and sing songs, and stuff like this. is a time to bless them, and share the love of Christ with them. So that's going to be this Tuesday at 5.30. I don't think I'm missing anything else, am I? We're all good? Okay, sweet. Well, if you're visiting us today, we want to welcome you. It's great to have you with us in the house of the Lord. Um, wow, that's some crazy rain we just had, huh? I mean, I drove to town two days ago, and I couldn't even see. I had to slow down to like 20 miles an hour. It was nuts. But um, praise God, he gave us a rainbow. We'll be all right. <laughs> so today is a very special day. Today is what we would call Palm Sunday, or Passion Week begins now. It's uh, Sunday. It's the first day of the week to the Jewish people, and Jesus is now heading into Jerusalem to finish his final course here on this earth, uh, fulfilling the ministry that he came to do. He came to die for our sins on the cross. Now, this, this day to me means so much to me. I mean, Christmas is awesome, uh, the birth of Jesus. Be honest with you, we really don't know what day Jesus was born on, but we, we designated a day to celebrate him coming into this world, and that's awesome. And Easter is amazing, celebrating that the tomb is empty, he is risen, uh, it, but there's something about this week that really gets me. It's, it's him coming in, riding in on a donkey, riding in on a colt, and, and coming to the people, and the people just caught up in emotion, ready to receive him only to turn on him three days later. And the things that he will go through during this week are just incredible, and he did it all because he loves you. And he did it all because he loves me. And I think sometimes we don't realize how much God loves us. And so we're going to look at chapter 19 today, but we're going um, to start kind of in the middle of it, verse 28, and then we'll come back to the beginning of it because I want you to see a couple of things here. So Verse 28, Luke 19. When he had said this, speaking of Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and he came to pass that he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter in you will find a colt, small donkey, tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it, bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it, thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way, and they found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes, the other gospel tells us, and palm branches on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Now some of the Pharisees called to him, calling to Jesus from the crowd and said, King James says master, but they're not calling him master. They cried out to him, said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into this glorious piece of scripture, Lord God, as you begin your passion week, heading to the cross, Lord, to die for our sins, to pay the price that we could have a chance of just eternal life, putting our trust in you, Lord. We thank you that you did this all for us. And Lord, right now, we just ask that you would take us deeper in your word and stir up our hearts, Lord, to love you more and to serve you more. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Now, this is the Sunday, the final week. Um, he will be going to the cross soon. He'll be going through excruciating pain. He will be whipped. He will be beaten. He'll be pierced. He'll be beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah says you couldn't even tell who it was. That's a heavy beating. And he's going to do that because he loves you. And he's going to do that because he came to die for you. He came to pay the price for your sins. He came to pay a debt that he did not owe, a debt that you cannot pay. And he did that because he loves you. And that's, you got to stop and think. Have you ever stopped and just thought about how much God loves you? Think about it. And if you really grab on to the love that God has for you, you will start loving others the same way. He is our ultimate example. He is so full of love. He's so full of grace. He's so full of forgiveness. He's so full of mercy. He's so full of compassion and patience. Oh gosh, he's patient with us, isn't he? And he's so full of forgiveness. And we should be too. No greater love than a man lays down his life for another. Jesus laid down his life for all of us. And he took a beating. Can you just stop and think about that? The very creation that he made beat him and put him on a cross and killed him. That's crazy when you stop and think about it. This is such an important time in our history when Jesus riding in and they almost got it. They almost grabbed onto it. They were screaming the Halah Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. They were crying out. They were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. They were ready. They were willing. But something happened in Israel. Something happened to where the nation had turned their back on Jesus and rejected him as a whole. Now, many Jews got saved. Many people came to Jesus, but the nation as a whole rejected him. Everything would have been so different if they would have responded the right way this day as a nation. It's around the feast time. The, 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 the population swells from 600,000 to some 2-3 million during the feast time. And Jesus comes riding in humbly, fulfilling prophecy. When you stop and you think about all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it's, it's, it's just, it's impossible to grab onto. Just alone in, in what we're looking at today, we see uh, fulfillment of Daniel 9, Zechariah 9, Zechariah 12, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53, Micah 5, Psalm 118. I could go on and on. And when you think of the probability of anybody fulfilling the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it's an impossible number. It's impossible. Jesus fulfilled over 320 prophecies. The possibility of anybody doing that is impossible. Over 320 prophecies. Just to fulfill, check this out, just for him to come and fulfill 10 of those prophecies is impossible. Scientists said it would be 1 in 10 to the 20th power. That's the chances of him fulfilling just 10 prophecies would be 1 in 10 add 20 zeros to it. 
Okay, that didn't really affect you. Okay, let's, let's um, look at it this way. Check it out. This would be like if you took the whole state of California and you filled it six feet deep with nuts. I, I'm not being prophetic here. But just picture the whole state of California filled six feet deep with nuts, and one of them is marked. Only one. And then you take Rocky the Flying Squirrel. You guys remember Bullwinkle and Rocky? Anybody? Mr. Know-it-all, and he had the sidekick, Rocky the Flying Squirrel. So we're going to take Rocky the Flying Squirrel. California is filled six feet deep with nuts. There's only one nut that's marked. And Rocky's going to get in a plane. He's going to start at the northern border, start flying south. The plane's going to go weaving all around it. At one point, Rocky jumps out of the airplane and starts sailing and flying down. And he lands somewhere in California and reaches down. And the very first nut that he picks up is the one that's marked. That's the chances of Jesus fulfilling just 10 prophecies, but he actually fulfilled over 320, which is totally mind-blowing. That's a whole different thing. That would be like, <clears throat> that would be like filling the entire universe, not galaxy, all the galaxies, all the universe. It would be like filling the entire universe with silver dollars, and you mark one, and then you borrow Captain Kirk's Starship Enterprise. You tell Spock to hit warp speed, and you go somewhere out there in the middle of wherever, and you say, stop it right here. Get out, reach out, grab a coin, and it's the one that's marked. That would be the probability of Jesus fulfilling over 320 prophecies. That should be enough. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that should be enough to lead you right to his feet. And he did that because he loves you. In verse 28, he sends his boys out as they're coming over, staying in Bethany the night, coming near Bethpage. He tells them to go get a donkey, a donkey that has never been ridden. If you've ever ridden a donkey, they are really stubborn anyway, and chances are they want to throw you off even if they've been ridden. This is a donkey that's never been ridden, and so he goes and sends them to get this young colt, this young male donkey, and bring the mom with them, as you'll find out from the other Gospels. And so he says he'll be over here, and if anybody asks, just tell them the Lord needs it. So they do it, and it's just as it was said. So then they set clothes on the donkey, and Jesus gets on it. He gets on a donkey that's never been ridden. But when you're the creator that created the donkey, I guess you have a unique relationship with the donkey, and the donkey is going to obey. Creation should obey. That was a great place for an amen. Creation should obey. All right, a little disobedient, aren't we? And so they put these clothes on him, on the, on the donkey. Jesus gets on it, and he starts to now descend from the Mount of Olives on the east side of the Temple Mount. It's what we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. People start laying palms and their clothes, their clothing, their outer coverings on the road for him. They start receiving him as king. It says the multitudes were gathered. Historians said there was some like 100 or 200,000 people in that area on that particular day because it was the beginning week that was headed towards Passover where people were flooding into the, the land. And so they had this multitude. And when you stop and you think of all the people, all the lives that Jesus touched in his three and a half year of ministry, think about it. Before he got to Jerusalem, he passed through Jericho, and remember, he healed blind Bartimaeus. He also spent an afternoon, and we'll look at this today, hanging out with Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector who gave his life to the Lord. As he's moving through the country, people are joining his entourage. As he's going up to Jerusalem, the numbers are increasing. Everybody's heard about Jesus of Nazareth, the root of Jesse, David's offspring, doing miracles, healings, casting out demons, feeding the multitudes. Think of the crowd that was coming around. Everybody was also showing up, the Gospels tells us, to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead, to see if it was really true. 
There was a big buzz going on in the city of Jerusalem. And so this multitude made up of blind Bartimaeus, uh, Zacchaeus, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, who had all the demons in her. And then think about Capernaum. In Capernaum, it says he healed the entire village. Everybody came out for healing or to have demons cast out, and we don't even know the number of that. He healed every single person. Think about that feeding of the 5,000. It said 5,000 men. There was probably women and children, so it was probably 15 to 20,000. Experience Jesus. What about the lady that reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment? What about Jairus' daughter? What about all the drunks and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the poor? They're all screaming and singing this messianic psalm, Psalm 118. Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Glory in the highest. They're rejoicing. You know, so many times during his ministry, they tried to take him and make him king. But they, they didn't really know what they were doing. They were accepting him for the wrong reasons. When he fed the multitudes, they want to make him a king. Why? Well, what, what a better king than a guy that takes care of the people, feeds them, heals them. Yeah, overthrow Rome. Let's make this guy king. The problem was they wanted Jesus to be king for what he could do for them and not for what he's done for them. They were more interested in being taken care of than even understanding who he really was. And so, so many times during his ministry, he resisted when they tried to make him king. But here, right now, he's orchestrating it. Why? Because this is a special day. This is a day that was prophetic. It was prophesied hundreds of years before this. And so now he's orchestrating it, and everybody starts singing. And as they're singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, oh man, those guys just know how to ruin a party, don't they? Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Because in their eyes, the people were calling Jesus the Messiah and the Pharisees would have nothing to do with it. Your, your, your disciples are blaspheming. Tell them to stop. Rebuke them. Tell them to shut up. And Jesus says, I'll tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I think that would have been fun to see. You know, the funny thing is, is that the Pharisees, what they missed while Jesus was there, they looked at him as an outcast because he hung out, he ate with sinners, he ate with drunks, he ate with prostitutes, he ate with tax collectors. And, and for the Pharisees, they were not looking at a Messiah to be um, the Son of God. They weren't looking at the Messiah to hang out with sinners. They were looking at a Messiah that would elevate Israel, that would bring Israel to a great height, and by Jesus hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, they felt like he was dragging Israel down, and so they wanted him dead. He was the problem. And so as we're looking at what's taking place here, and you see the people, something in their heart crying out for God, but then you see others who are upset with all this, like the Pharisees, You've got to stop and you've got to ask yourself, what's Jesus mean to you? We call this day the triumphal entry. Has Jesus made the triumphal entry into your heart? Or do you just know about Jesus? Do you just have knowledge about Jesus? You know, the, the, it says in James that the demons also believe in Jesus and tremble. They're not saved. So knowledge puffeth up. Have you had a transformation take place in your life? Is Jesus really your, your Lord and Savior, or is he just your Savior? You see what I'm saying? You've got to ask yourself, what do we have to do with Jesus? What Jesus would have for the people to do is to respond. Jesus wants you to respond to him. You know, it says the Spirit is calling, the Father is drawing, and Jesus went after you. So you got the Holy Spirit around you as an unbeliever, calling, 
revealing Jesus. You've got the Father drawing you unto Himself. And then it says Jesus pursued you. He went after you. Man, there ain't nothing better out there. He hunted you down to reveal Himself to you. And you desire Jesus in your heart, and God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so we have to ask the question, is Jesus your Lord? Is He your Savior? Is He your God? Is He everything to you? Because today, Jesus is looking for all of us to respond to the call. And so now I want to kind of like back up and take a look at the first verse of this chapter. And let's look at some people who responded to Jesus. We've got every type person here. But not everyone responds the same way. And so first we come to Zacchaeus. There in verse 1 of chapter 19, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and rich. So we see three things about Zacchaeus. Number one, he's a man. Number two, he's a chief tax collector. He's not just a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated by the people because they were a sellout to the Jews. They were working for Rome. They would collect taxes, and whatever they could collect on top of what was owed, they got to keep for themselves. So tax collectors were rich. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He is the chief. So we see three things. He's a man, he's a chief tax collector, and he's rich, okay? So he sought to see Jesus as Jesus is passing through Jericho. He sought to see Jesus, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was short in stature. So he's just a little guy, probably around five feet tall, can't see over the, the, the crowd. He wants to, he's heard all these things about Jesus. He's, he's, he's seen people that have been affected by Jesus. He wants to meet this Jesus and so he runs ahead, verse 4, climbs up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And this is interesting because notice he doesn't run into the crowd. He's a little guy. And uh, the crowd hates him. And so he's going to try to, like, what, wiggle through the crowd. He's going to get punched, kicked, stepped on. He knows better. So he runs up ahead, climbs a tree. He climbs a tree. That's, like, really kid-like, isn't it? Remember when you were kids and you climbed tree? I mean, adults today don't really climb trees, right? I mean, Gabe does and, and Seth does, but, but, you know, I mean, mostly it's a kid thing. And I like this because if you're going to come to Jesus, you have to come like a child. And he wants to meet Jesus so bad, he climbs up in a tree, and Jesus looks over at him, and he says, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. <coughs> You've got Jesus in this crowd who hates tax collectors. And as he walks by, he stops. He acknowledges Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to hang with you today. And everybody hears it. And some people get pretty upset. So he made haste. He came down, received him joyfully. How's that? Joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. <laughs> Don't you like it when somebody who's a sinner calls you a sinner? <laughs> it says, Then Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I'll give half my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore fourfold. That is more than the law says to do. That is the proof of a transformed life. Zacchaeus is in the presence of God. He sees the goodness of God. He's desiring everything that Jesus is offering. He comes and he says, listen, I'm going to give half of my riches to the poor. And I'm going to restore anybody I've, I've, you know, messed up four times more. That is faith in action. We are saved by faith, not of works. But James would challenge us by saying, show me your faith by your works. We're still saved by faith, not by works. But true saving faith 
produces good works out of a love for Jesus, but those works don't save you. Here's evidence right away that this guy has changed. He's a tax collector. He's greedy. He's like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell what I got, give half to the poor. And then anybody that I've wrongly accused, I'm going to give them fourfold back. And look what Jesus says. Today, salvation has come to this house. Wow. Something in Zacchaeus' heart changed where Jesus said, salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. I thought that was an interesting statement right there. Remember when Jesus gets into the argument with the Pharisees and they're, you know, they're like calling him, well, you're, you know, you're like a bastard son and, and we're, a, we're the children of Abraham. And, and Jesus had to kind of lay out the guideline like, uh, you know, just you may be the DNA of Abraham, but what makes a true son or daughter of Abraham is that spiritual connection by being born again. That when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we become spiritually the sons and the daughters of Abraham. And so he points that out right here in front of the crowd. This is a big day. You can imagine all the people getting their feathers ruffled that are looking on this, watching what Jesus is doing. Salvation comes to this house today? Oh my goodness. And because he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save which was lost. Now, when they heard these things, they spoke one to another. He, he spoke another parable to them because he was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So listening to what's going on, knowing their thoughts, they had a different idea what the kingdom would be. Jesus is trying to put out there, it's about the heart. It's not about works. And they just witness him eating with a sinner and then saying salvation has come to this house. And knowing their thoughts, he gives this parable. And this is a mind-blowing parable. Look at the parable. It says that he said to them, verse 12, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten pounds or ten minas. And he said to them, do business till I come. But his, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So he's going to give this parable now, and he's putting himself in the parable. There's this nobleman. The nobleman is Jesus. The nobleman went into a far country to receive to himself a kingdom. He paid for the price for this place on earth at the cross, but he receives the kingdom at the throne of his father who will hand him the title deed. You see what's going on here? And then he will return. So he calls 10 of his servants, 10 of you, and he gives them all a pound. He gives them all a mina. A pound or a mina is three months wages. He gives all 10 the same amount, and he says, do business till I come. But the citizens who hated him sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Do you realize there's people that hate Jesus? Do you realize there's a lot of people in this world that will say, we will not have this Jesus rule over us. So he gives these funds to 10 of his who know him, who love him, who are his, and expects them to do business with what he's given them. Verse 15 and so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what, how every man had gained by trading. Then came the first one saying, Master, the mina has earned ten, ten more pounds. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in the very little, you will have authority over ten cities." Ten cities. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on this earth. It's called the thousand-year millennial king reign. And he's telling this servant who did well during his service on this earth, he said, you, you're going to receive ten cities to rule over. We're ruling and reigning with Jesus. And then he goes to the next one, and he says, Master, um, you know, the, the, the mina that you gave me, I, I got five more with it. And he says, likewise to him, you will be over five cities. But then he comes to the last guy, and the last guy did nothing with what God gave him. You see where this is going? 
And in fact, he, he said, Master, here's your mina, which I've kept, put away in a handkerchief. I buried it, basically, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you do not deposit. You reap where you do not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. What? You knew I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Now let's stop and think about what's going on here. These are three different servants. They're all born again. One takes what Jesus gives him, turns it over tenfold. God says, well done. You'll be over ten cities. The other one turns it fivefold. God says, well done to you. Be over five cities. One hides it, doesn't do anything with it. And Jesus calls this one a wicked servant. That's pretty heavy. He's born again, though. Yeah, he is. You see, listen, God gives us everything. Everything you got is his. You don't own anything, okay? He's letting you borrow his stuff, his money, and he gives you gifts, spiritual gifts that are not for you. Hello? But for some reason, some people think the spiritual gifts are all just for them, and they don't share what God's given them. I can do all things through Christ. He gives me stuff, I give it. I keep going. He's looking for someone he can give through. And so we give of what we have, we give of our stuff, we give of our money, we give of ourselves, we serve him, and we use the gifts of the Spirit to bless others. It's just a giving thing. And as we give, he gives more so we can distribute more. And he gives more and we distribute more. But if you're not going to be able to distribute what he gives you, he calls you a wicked servant. Oh, you're saved. You're born again, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 would say. You're saved by as of fire. You, yeah, you, you get to heaven, but your pants will be smoking. God holds you accountable to use what he's given you. Everything you got, whatever it is, whether it's money, stuff, spiritual blessings. But if you're a Christian who won't give and won't serve, and won't use your spiritual gifts to help others, he's going to say you're a wicked servant. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I, want to, I, want to, I, want to, I challenge you today, give of yourself, give of the things God's given you, and watch him give you more so you can give more away. We're, we're down to the wire. We're in the final countdown. Jesus is coming soon. Let's go out with a bang. Let's give God our best, amen? It's so important. And so then, what's even more disturbing is what comes after that. He says in verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take that pound, take that mina from him, and give it to him that has ten. And they were like, wait, that guy already's got ten. You see, what, you see what he's doing here? The guy that has a bunch, he's just going to keep giving to because he knows he can trust the guy that has a bunch that he's going to give him away. That he's going to invest with what God's done. So he says, give it to the guy that's got ten. They're like, he's already got ten. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And so he says, listen, you know, if I give you a bunch of stuff and you keep giving it away, I'll give you more. But if you're somebody who just hoards everything I give you, don't use your spiritual gifts, you don't want to serve him, you don't want to, he will take it away and give it to somebody who will. Do you see what he's doing here? But then he makes this radical statement, verse 27, but bring here those enemies of mine who would not have me reign over them and slay them before me. What? Jesus is saying, There's people who are just going to reject him. They're never going to accept him. And he says, bring them before me and slay him. That's pretty heavy because we think, wow, that seems kind of harsh. I mean, isn't this Jesus who, who's meek and mild and full of love and grace, but 
you got to remember that he's saying this in context to Zacchaeus. He's saying this in context that the door is open for anyone. Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. The door is open to everybody. But if you don't want to go through that door, you made the decision. Jesus didn't send you to hell. You know, he's going to come here to set up his kingdom, and he's going to meet against a Christ-rejecting world, or it's going to come up against him in the valley of Armageddon, Megiddo Valley, and he's going to gather all the enemy before him and slay him. Hello? And the blood is going to rise up to the horse's bridle, some four or five feet deep in Megiddo Valley. If you've ever been there, that'll be quite a scene. Jesus is saying here in this parable, you guys don't have any idea what the kingdom's going to be like. You've got your ideas, but your ideas are wrong. Salvation is for anyone. Salvation is for Gentile. Salvation is for Jew. It's for man. It's for woman. It's anyone that will acknowledge me as Lord and Savior, that I'm going to the cross to die for your sins, accept me, and have eternal life. It's there for everyone. The door is wide open. Amen. But if you reject what he's offering you, you need to understand you did it. He didn't send you to hell. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants you with him. He loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. And so he says this parable right before he comes to the Mount of Olives. And I think what we've got to understand is that there are Christ rejectors out there who don't want anything to do with Jesus. And they actually pride themselves in doing evil. And so the real question today is, how are you responding to Jesus? Will you serve him? Can you take what he's given you and turn it tenfold? Can you take what he's given you and turn it fivefold? Or are you somebody here today that's just hiding everything that God has given you and you're not using it for his glory? Who is Jesus to you? Well, these disciples who witnessed everything that Jesus had been doing in his ministry, they start crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But then the Pharisees cry out to Jesus, tell him to stop. Rebuke your disciples. And he says, listen, if I told him to keep silent, these stones would immediately cry out. And in verse 41, it says, Now he drew near, and he saw the city, and he wept over it. Wow, what's going on? He wept over the city. The word there in the Greek is not just like, you know, tears coming down his face. It's convulsing. He's riding in on this donkey. He's looking over the city. He knows that Israel has turned their back on him as a nation. Not all the people have, but as a nation they have. The Pharisees, the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. The Pharisees, and he weeps convulsively, like, you know, like when you're just, you're shaking, you're just, ah, crying. His heart is broken. Why? He says, if they would have known, even especially in this, your day, these things that make for your peace, if you would have known this day, everything would have been different for Israel. Everything would have been different for Israel. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is he saying right here? He's saying, listen, he was holding them accountable to know this very day. And because they didn't know this day, he prophesied of Israel, of Jerusalem being leveled in 70 AD by Titus Aspasia, who's sent in by the emperor. He, he secures the whole area, locks it down, and there was a lockdown. Nobody in, nobody out for a year as they fought, and a million Jews died, and there was just, there was all kinds of disease. There was cannibalism. They were just kind of waiting them out, and then some soldier fires a fiery arrow into the temple. It sets on fire. The whole thing 
melts with the gold and all this stuff, and, and the whole city's destroyed because Rome wanted the gold, so they tore that whole temple apart, stone by stone, to get all of the gold, and, and the temple mount was leveled. And he said it right here. And he said, if they would have known this day, everything would have been different. What would that mean? Jesus would still have to die for our sins. The Romans would kill him. Why? Because if, if Israel acknowledged Jesus as king, then Jesus would be an insurrectionist and Rome would kill him anyway. So Jesus had to die for our sins. But what he's saying here is everything could have been different for Israel. He held them accountable to the scriptures. He's holding you accountable to the scriptures. If you want to know more about Jesus, read his book. It's great. It's a love story to you and to me. What is he talking about here? He is talking about a prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's praying for, in, for, in, for the people. He's, he's praying to God and he's saying, he's realizing, Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, realizing there was a 70-year captivity. They were hauled off to Babylon for 70 years. He was coming to the end of that captivity. And as he's reading that and understanding it, he starts praying to God. He says, Lord, we sin against you. And he just pours out this beautiful prayer and asks the Lord to heal the people. And then God sends him, Gabriel, to bring a message to him. And Gabriel comes and he says to Daniel, he says, 70 weeks are determined. 70 weeks are referring to 77-year periods or 489 years. 70 weeks are determined. But then Gabriel breaks them into three different groups. He says there's seven seven-week periods. Then there's 62 seven-year periods, and then there'll be one final seven-year period. So the seven seven-week period is 49 years. The 62 sevens makes up uh, 434 years, and then there's a five final seven-year period. So he puts it in three different places. Why does he do that? Because he says the first 49 years will be finished by the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the walls. And then 62 weeks or another 434 years to the Messiah riding in and presenting himself before the people, bringing 69 weeks total. And then there's going to be a gap, and then there's going to be a final seven-year period. The gap is the church. The 70 weeks of Daniel is not the church. It's Israel. It deals with Israel. The church does not go through the tribulation. God's going to take us out. But there's been this gap for 2,000 years. The church is nestled in there, beautiful, the bride of Christ. Israel is the wife of Jehovah. We're the bride of Christ. And then when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet, he blows that trump, we're out of here. And then it ushers in that last seven-year period. Okay, so follow me. I hope I'm not messing you guys up. Are you all right? Okay, so he says, all this begins the very day a decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls. And that happened in Nehemiah chapter 2 with King Artaxerxes. March 14th, 445 B.C., a decree went out to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And if you add up 69 weeks or 483 years, you come up with 173,880 days of a 360-year calendar that Jesus uses. So 483 years is 173,880 days. And if you take it to Artaxerxes making his decree in Nehemiah chapter 2, and, and that's March 14th, 445 B.C., you add 173,880 days, and you come exactly to April 6th, 32 A.D., the very day that Jesus rode in. Kawinky dink He said, if you would have known this thy day, everything would have been different for you. And he's saying that to you and me today. Because a lot of you have questions. A lot of you are going through things. A lot of, and, and Jesus would say, if you just would have known the scripture, you wouldn't be in the position that you are. 
Well, how do I get out of this? Well, if you just knew this passage, you would know how. This is the manual for life. Everything is in here. It's not, it doesn't leave out anything. The good, the bad, the ugly, it's all there. And thank God he puts everybody's failures in there so we can feel good about ourselves. You, 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 he wants you to study the word of God. And then he, he ends this with, look at verse 45. He says, then he went into the temple. Now, this is actually the next day, according to the other gospels. And he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. This is the second time he's done this. Remember the first time at the beginning of his ministry? He went in and he, and he flipped over the tables and he started whipping people, driving out the money changers. He said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Now he's owning it. You made my house a den of thieves. And he's flipping over the tables and running out the money changers. And as we wrap this whole thing up, I was thinking to myself, I was thinking, you know, Remember when, remember when Jesus came into your life and flipped a few tables? Is it just me? And, and things I thought I wanted, what I needed, and he just came and he just flipped upside down all, all my dreams that were worldly dreams, and he revealed himself to me in such a mighty way that I gave my life, you gave your life to him. But I find even as being his son, or now as a Christian, that he's still overturning tables in my life because sometimes I can kind of get off track. Can anybody relate to me? Say amen if you can. Okay, and, and so we'll get a little off track and we kind of get our focus in this direction. He's got to come over and kind of flip that table. And we go, ooh, wow, okay, I'll get back on track over here. And so many times we can pray for things and we say, Lord, you know, you know I've, been, I've been kind of really derailed. I've been doing this or that. And he says, I forgive you. I love you. And then I can go right back to it. And it's, it's not like it's super bad things, but it's just not profitable things. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes in our lives, God's just got to keep flipping some tables in our lives. And I thank God for when he does that to me. Steve, this isn't any good for you. I know, but it doesn't seem bad. He goes, well, it's not what I want you to do. See, God did something very special when you got saved. He placed himself in you. Jesus Christ, the hope and the glory. We have Christ dwelling in us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, listen, you know, I'm not only going to put you in my family, but I'm going to give you the power to do all things in my name. You're not going to have to do it in your own power. I'm going to give you the power, and then when you're done doing it, I'll reward you for what I did through you. That's a pretty good gig. Sometimes we try to do things in our own power and we get some stuff done, but nothing like we can get done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I, I will send you the comforter and he will teach you all things. He says, I got to go. They didn't want him to go. He says, I got to go. But when I go, I will send you the comforter and he will teach you all things. I think of uh, John 14. Check this out. John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Is that good news or what? Man, he's gone to prepare a place for you. Guys, grab onto this. Check it out. He created this whole place in how many days? Six. And he rested. How great is a place that he's been preparing for 2,000 years? Right? And he says, listen, you're a pilgrim passing through. I'm, I'm going to do something very special. I'm not gonna, you're not going to be alone in this thing. I'm going to have your hand the whole time. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. <clears throat> I'm going to send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what that was like for the apostles? The first time, remember when Jesus rose on a Sunday, Sunday night, he went to check on the boys. Where were the boys? Freaking out, locked up in a room, fearing that they would be killed next, right? And remember, what does he do? He comes right through the wall. He's like, hey, guys. And they all freak out. They thought they saw a ghost. He's like, no, 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 go touch me. Does a, does a ghost have flesh and bone? And he breathed on them. 
and they received the Holy Spirit. They, they, they were born again right then. Pentecost was when they received the power and the promise of the Father, the, the power to do things in his name. But they were already saved. So here was the thing. Jesus was saying to his disciples, to the apostles, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send you a comforter because they're upset because Jesus wasn't going to be with them. He goes, oh, I'm going to be so with you. It's going to be crazy. I'm going to be inside you. That's a little scary. Right? Because every time I go do something that's not quite right, he's with me. Can you imagine what it was like for the apostles to be with him for three and a half years, to hear his voice, to see him do ministry, and, and then he leaves, they see him crucified on the cross, he rises from the dead, he hangs out with them for 40 days, and he ascends into heaven, he says, wait here to receive the power and the promise of the Father, it's going to be good. And now they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, guiding, they have Jesus dwelling in them and guiding them, and, and, and I, I just think of the apostles like, Remembering, listening to him speak. And now he's gone. But now they have him in him. And now he's speaking to their hearts. And I just imagine them hearing his voice just like if he was there. Wow. I can't imagine what that'd be like. Because there's times I feel God is just speaking so clearly to me. And it blows my mind. And I wonder what it was like for the apostles. It's just like he's not there, but he is there. And then he would say, hey, Peter, go over here and preach this sermon. And he would hear it. Yes, Lord, I'm going. John, go over here. Paul, go there. And he's calling your name today, and he's telling you to go here. Go there. Do this. Do that. Are you responding? See, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Let me close with this. We are the temple of the living God. You are the light of the world. And light is not felt, it's seen. He's looking for those who he can use. Is that you? Because he's given you the power. Ezekiel 37, 14. Listen to this. Ezekiel 37, 14. God says, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. Okay, let's rewind that. We'll say it again. And you act like you care. Okay? I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. Woo! Let's stand. Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord God, that you are willing to use us, Lord. We ask right now that you would fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. We got a whole day ahead of us. We got divine appointments that you've set up, you've orchestrated, and we're ready to go do your business, to be about your business until you're coming. And so, Lord, we ask that for a fresh filling to be empowered, to be emboldened with you, to give us strength and to protect us also, Lord God. Bless our families and put a hedge of protection around this church and around the people that come here, Lord God. And let us be that light that shines bright for your glory, that when men see our good works, they glorify you and not us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just do what you do best. Take over in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.